again briefly, and we'll get into the scriptures here. Father, we ask that you'd honor yourself by revealing uh, more of the truth from your word. And Father, as you do that, would you conform us more fully to the image of your Son? Would you be speaking to each one of us here the things we need to hear? Thanks for Will's time at the Passion Conference, Lord, and uh, to have those moments of a transcendent uh, reality, a reminder of, of your goodness and our future, glorious future in your presence is a great thing. And as Will said, it's not where we live 24-7. Those times tend to be the exception, not the rule. Uh, but Lord, through the things you speak to us from your Spirit drawing us after you, would you make our experience more regularly uh, the reality of the depth of glory and peace and joy in knowing, loving, and serving you. Prayer time here this morning is helpful to that end. In Jesus' name. Daniel 3 uh, tells a story of uh, not Daniel, but actually three of his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, uh, better known usually Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're Babylonian names. Uh, Johnny Cash has a song about this. I can't help putting a plug in so you can listen to it later on YouTube or whatever. They wouldn't bend. They wouldn't bow. They wouldn't burn. It's memorable. A little bit of theology there in Johnny Cash's music. So Daniel 3, uh, Daniel's friends, they're in Babylon. Daniel's not in the picture in this story. In chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on earth, had had a dream. And the Jewish prophet Daniel had told him what that dream meant. And the dream included a statue with a head of gold. The statue represented successive world empires. And Daniel said, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Now, we know from later chapters in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had a pride issue. And God works with him on that. In chapter 3, he's erected a statue, like an obelisk, really tall, slender, there on the plains of Babylon. And he got his praise band together, took them out there on the plains, and he brought all his royal officials with them. And he said, this is the deal. When the praise band strikes up, you guys bow down and worship this statue. So that's what they do. Only Daniel's three friends are there. They're officials in the kingdom. But they don't bend, and they don't bow. So someone rats on them, tells the king, hey, these guys, they didn't do it, just FYI. So the king calls them in, and he says, hey, guys, uh, what God is there that can deliver you from my hand? You're going to bow down to my statue, or you're going to be thrown alive into this fiery furnace. Take your pick. You can live, bow, and live. Or you can stand erect and die. Take your pick. Now, I love the confidence of these guys. By the way, <clears throat> you know we don't plan for emergencies and trials in life. They just happen. And if you're not ready, you can't get ready when they come. You've got to be ready ahead of time. These guys were ready. So they say this to the king. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. This is radical, speaking of the guy, throw you in the fire or chop your head off. But if not, 
if our God, if Yahweh doesn't save us from the fire and from you, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods, we will not worship the golden image that you have set up. We're not going there. We're not going to bend and we're not going to bow. He's ticked, to say the least. So he commands that that furnace be fired even hotter than before. They tie up the guys. The guards take them and they throw them into the fire. It's so hot the guards are consumed by the heat just to get the guys inside. So Nebuchadnezzar looks into this fiery furnace expecting to see, you can imagine, their bodies being consumed in the flames. But that's not what he sees. He sees these three friends standing, not laid down. They're not consumed. The bonds, the ropes that have been used to tie them up, they're gone. And they're walking around in there. They're having a little Sunday stroll inside that fiery furnace. And someone else is with them. This person that looks like one of the sons of the God, Nebuchadnezzar says. And he calls them. Hey, you guys, come back out here. And he says this, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, this is a key phrase, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. They wouldn't bend. They wouldn't bow. At the end of the day, they wouldn't burn. He says they were willing to yield up their bodies to be burned to be true to Yahweh their God. Guys, this is a great picture of worship. They yielded their bodies up to be burned in order to worship Yahweh. That's what they did. They were committed body and soul to the worship of their God. And no one else was going to get the worship reserved for Him alone. Their act of defiance was in fact an act of worship. Their lives were about worship. What do we worship? This is not a trick question, but you'll need to think about it. What do we worship? Who do we worship? And what is worship anyway? What do we worship? Who do we worship? And what is worship anyway? We're going to look, Lord willing, answer those questions this morning. This is the start of a four-week study on the topic of worship. This morning, sort of some working definitions, some description of what worship is biblically, what that requires of us. Next week, worship at the table. That's the Lord's table. In February, two more, worship in our work. And last, worship together. That would be corporate worship what we usually think of when we use that word. Uh, this is a topic that's uh, been on my mind a lot for a long time. It follows discussions I've had with leadership groups, worship leaders, home groups, Sunday school groups, etc. Uh, I am convinced that we are an idolatrous world and nation and church. And when I say church, I don't mean the church broadly, though I include them. I mean us. I mean we here in this room. We are idolatrous. We speak of worship in ways that are absolutely foreign to the Scriptures. Many of us hold views of worship that are no less than an insult and an affront to God. We don't know that, but they are. If you think about the church of Jesus Christ today, we offer token worship 
faint praise, half-hearted allegiance to God. And then we wonder why we have so little personal power and transformation. And we wonder why the church has so little impact in our culture. This is a duh moment for me. Duh. There's a reason for that. I think it's because we're not worshipers. Chuck Swindoll said it this way. Many others have used this quote. I'm not actually sure who originated it. We've become a generation of people who worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. We play at our worship. It's the last thing on our list. I fear for us and our future if we don't gain hearts of wisdom like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I fear that we are becoming, perhaps in the process, perhaps we're already there, resembling the church of Laodicea, that we're thrilled with temporary trinkets that we get to entertain ourselves with in our time on the earth, and we have very little apprehension of Christ himself. We'll start with sort of a working definition of what the Bible talks about as worship. You know, if we use the term worship today, we're usually thinking about the church gathered, the instruments playing, and we're singing. So if I say worship, that's probably what comes to most of our minds. You know, that is worship, but historically and biblically, that is a very, very narrow, small slice of what the Bible calls worship. Very narrow slice. Biblically and historically, worship was understood to be this. Worship was a person coming before their superior and they were physically bowing before them, prostrate on the ground in front of them. And the thought is this. This is a hard concept for us in the West, in a republic where we sort of all do our own thing. The concept is foreign to us. But historically, this was, this was understood, especially in a kingdom. So if I come before the king, when I bow before the king, I'm acknowledging you're the king and I'm not. You control my life. You could chop my head off. You could kill me this instant. I breathe at your disposal. I'm here for you. You're my superior. And when I bow, I'm acknowledging I belong to you. And since I belong to you, that means everything I have, whatever I own, whatever my time has, all of that belongs to the one before whom I bow. That's the biblical and the historic notion of worship that really reflected by a physical posture bowing before God and in doing so, understanding that we're saying to God, you're God, I'm not. I belong to you. All that I am or have or hope for is yours. I'm at your disposal. If you think of the Muslim practice of praying five times a day on their prayer rugs, that's a great image of biblical worship. They get it. There's this physical posture that reflects an inner attitude. I bow in submission to my God. In the Old Testament, there are two Hebrew words that are used primarily for worship. One means bow down. And one means serve. So when you read in the Old Testament about worship, we're talking about physically bowing before God 
or the king or whoever it is, or serving God or the king. Worship wasn't about singing per se. It was about bowing and serving. If you go to the New Testament, you see exactly the same thing. Primarily two words. One that means prostrate before God. This also carries the thought of to kiss the hand. If you think back to Psalm 2, when the psalmist warns people to kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you in your rebellion, that's this picture. That you would come, you would bow, you would kneel, and you would kiss the hand and acknowledge, you're God, I'm not. If you've seen Roman Catholics approach the Pope, they kneel and they kiss the hand. That's exactly what this means. It's just directed in the wrong place there, to a man instead of to God Himself. But that's exactly the imagery here. When we talk about churches having a liturgy, you know, if you're Protestants, most of us, many of us, we say we don't have a liturgy, but we do. Because liturgy just means serve or service. So that broad term that meant to serve God came to be used in a narrow sense to say that's what the church does when we gather together. But the term is much broader than that. The term means the service we offer God all the time. New Bible Dictionary describes worship this way. This should be on your study sheet, by the way. The essential concept in Scripture is service. The words originally signified the labor of slaves or hired servants. In order to offer this worship to God, His servants must prostrate themselves physically, assume a position of submission, and thus manifest reverential fear and adoring awe and wonder. So, to worship God is to offer our lives to Him through obedience to His commands. We're His servants. We serve Him. We offer ourselves to Him in service. Worship is no less than the commitment to obey and honor God in every sphere of life, in every moment of life, and the physical posture of kneeling before God or bowing before Him reflects that humble submission and commitment to serve Him. So there's a physical aspect, historically and biblically, to worship. But it's meant to reflect an inner attitude of the heart that, God, I'm yours. All that I am, all that I have, all that I hope for, it's yours. That's the biblical call to worship. Paul frames this in the imagery of a sacrifice. And just go back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for a moment. In that picture, you've got bodies in the fire. They offered their bodies to be burned. Guys, that's a sacrifice. Bring that imagery into Paul in Romans 12.1. For 11 chapters in Roman, and this was Paul's model, he's given them theology and doctrine. He said, guys, everybody's lost. God's made provision for your loss through faith in Jesus Christ. He's given you a spirit so you can know Him and walk with Him. He's given us three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, about God's plan for the Gentiles and for the Jews. And when the theology's over and Paul's ready to implement application, his first point is worship. And he gives them an image by which they're to see their lives as an act of worship. So there in Romans 12, 1, 
I appeal to you, therefore, based on who God is and what He's done for you in Christ, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's our spiritual worship? It's to see our lives as a sacrifice on the altar to God. The difference here for Paul is we're not consumed. We're like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're in the fire. Our bodies are being offered and yet we live. But every moment is like an animal carcass on the fire devoted to God, His honor, His glory, His use. You know, in their day, in Paul's day, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, worship meant to go and offer sacrifices. And so a carcass, an animal was slain and put on that altar, and its body was consumed in the fire. Everything on that altar belonged to God. So when Paul says this, he's telling us to see our lives as an act of worship like an animal on an altar. Once the animal was put there, or the grain offering, or the incense, whatever it was, there was no question about who it belonged to. It wasn't mine. It was God's. Everything on the altar was God's. And so Paul says Christians are to see their life as if we are living on the altar in the fire. And that every moment of every day is an act of offering ourselves conscientiously to God. A sacrifice that isn't slain, that's alive in the fire on the altar. That sacrifice had only one singular use, and that was it was for God. We'll talk about this later in February, but when we talk about worship today, not only do we unnecessarily and unbiblically narrow our thought generally to singing on Sunday morning, we tend to see ourselves as the consumers. How was worship today? It was great. What does that mean? It made me feel good. I liked the songs. I was really encouraged. Well, what, how did you participate in worship? Oh, I just sat there, soaked it in. You know, I need to be recharged on Sunday morning. I just soaked it in. It was so good. Now, I'm all for, I'm all for getting charged up on Sunday morning. And I think when we worship together, God inhabits the praises of His people. God shows up when we meet in Jesus' name. Absolutely. Should that be encouraging? Absolutely. But if we don't understand God is the consumer, we're not, then we've got worship backwards. That's the worship of ourselves. That's not a worship of God. We're called to see our lives as one continuous offering and that includes all that we are and have. I'm going to roll down a few lists in our time this morning. Let me go over one short one with you here. When Christians give of our finances back to God, we're called to give the first of our increase. Because remember that the first in biblical parlance represents everything that follows. So when we give to God from the first of our financial increase, we're acknowledging to God, all of our finances are yours. All of our resources, God, belong to you. When we start our day meeting with the Lord in the Scriptures and prayer, and no guilt trip, but I hope you do, and if you're not, you should. 
When we start our day with God in the Scriptures and prayer, we're affirming to God, Lord, my day is Yours. I'm giving You the first part of my day because it all belongs to You. And I remind myself by giving You that first part. When we meet on the first day of the week as a church, it's not only because Jesus rose on the first day of the week, He instituted this new creation. It's the first day of the week we gather together to give ourselves again conscientiously, collectively to God because the following week all belongs to God. It's not just Sunday the first day of the week. We give to God the first and the best because all of our life is God's. And giving the first reminds us of that. If our worship devolves to a form of tokenism, and by that I mean we give to God, we worship, when we choose to, when we feel like it, as we like, as it feels right in the moment, then we are in fact actually, we're not worshiping God. We're disrespecting God. We're denigrating God. We are insulting Him. We are not worshiping. See, this is the bottom line. If my life, if the bent of my life, if the trajectory, if the chief characteristic of my life is not to, with a will, submit myself to God, I'm not a worshiper. By definition, I can't be. I can't get there. Worship is about an act of the will whereby I give God all that I am and all that I have. Since worship means to submit myself to God, there are some key areas of life that I can look at to just ask myself if I'm characterized by worship. If we look at ourselves and what place we fill right now in life, God tends to say certain things to certain groups of us. So for instance, if I'm a child living under my parents' roof, being provided and raised, nurtured by my parents, if I'm not already set to obey and respect my parents, then I can tell you you're not a worshiper. Because that's the key thing God calls you to do. So if you say to God, I'm not going to respect and obey my parents, but I'm going to worship you on Sunday morning, I just say again, you can't get there. That's not worship. You're singing on Sunday morning when you're defiant the rest of the week. It's an insult to God. This is not what he's after. If I'm a single adult, a career adult, and I see my life as one opportunity after another to please myself, and I'm not saying this is a truism, but if I do, instead of seeing that I have liberty to honor and serve God in ways other people may not, then I can't come in and, and worship on Sunday morning. That life isn't about my opportunities to spend money on myself. It's about my ability to serve God, whatever that looks like. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, I have kinds of liberty to serve God, perhaps in travel or Finances that other people who are married with kids may not have. There's a greater liberty to serve God directly. If I'm married, if I'm not loving my spouse, if I'm not being thoughtful about supporting them and helping them become more the person in Christ God calls us to be, and I know this is a work for anyone that's married, if that's not my characteristic in marriage, I'm not a worshiper because that's God's key call to me as a married person, how am I treating my spouse? 
If I'm a parent, if I haven't committed in prayer and practice and through the Scriptures and training, if I haven't committed my children to God so that they grow up to become worshipers, God-fearers, children of God, I'm not characterized by worship because that's the key call for a parent before God. You can see where this goes. If I'm an employer, do I treat my employees, those under my care, in a respectful way? Am I considerate of them? It's hard to be a worshiper if I'm not. If I'm an employee, am I offering my employer my best as if they represent God? Because Paul says they do. If I'm not, it's hard to be a worshiper because that's my call as an employee or a student. Am I offering God my best in every area of life? If I'm not, I can't come one day of the week and become a worshiper. It's an insult. The rest of my life is an argument against the tokenism I may offer God on Sunday morning. God is not interested in this view of worship. So, to what degree is my life seen this way, characterized by worship? Am I a worshiper in life because my life is submitted to God in obedience? To the degree we pick and choose what areas of life we'll obey God in, to that same degree we have set ourselves up as rivals to God, idols, and false gods. If we see worship primarily as a time on Sunday morning that we sing with others, we've missed the greater, fuller biblical context of worship. If this is the case, then I would make this argument. We are living lives of idolatry because to the degree that we are not willfully, volitionally, thoughtfully offering our life to God as an act of worship, we are by necessity worshiping someone and something else. If I don't see my life day in, day out, moment by moment, as God's to be lived under His rule, willfully submitted to Him, then I am by default worshiping someone or something else. Malachi 1, Malachi last book in the Old Testament, a great book, short book, four chapters. Things in Malachi's time should have been great. Because the Jewish captives from Babylon, they'd returned to Israel. And the temple had been rebuilt. This, is a, this was huge. You know, Daniel and his friends, they could only dream of the day that Jews could go back to Israel and worship at the temple again. Remember when Daniel prayed, he faced Jerusalem. They could only dream of this. So the Jews are back in the land. The temple's rebuilt. The sacrifices are being offered. The people are back in Jerusalem in the place of promise. So what's the problem? Well, this was the problem. God confronts them with a series of events and occasions and practices in their life in which they are totally disrespecting Him. And one of them was in their worship. And this was the deal. The law required that you gave to God your first and your best. And that's not what they were doing. So if they had a cow that had some defect, that's what they were bringing. 
they had some rotten grain or some old oil. That's what they were giving God. They were coming to the temple and treating God like a second-rate despot and throwing their leftovers at him and thinking that this would be okay. And God says to them through Malachi, his messenger, he says, listen, close the doors. Just shut the temple doors. I'm not interested in this. And he said to them, I am a great God, and the nations of the world will know that I'm a great God, and yet here I am in my own backyard being disrespected by my own people. I'm not interested in this view of worship. Take it away. Don't want it. Not interested. A life of real worship based on the biblical model is radically different than most of the lives we're living. To live a life that's characterized by worship, we don't ask primarily what we want, what I want, but what God wants. We don't see life as a series of options by which I can please myself more fully, sate my appetite. By the way, you know, God's blessed us with tons of good things to enjoy. This isn't about any form of asceticism, by the way. It's just about putting God first. And just so I don't forget, when we put God first, it's amazing the things He does for us. And I don't mean, don't think of this primarily monetarily or physically. The greatest wealth in the world is not the wealth of the world, it's God Himself. When we put God first and we worship Him with our life, we get more of God. And He's the treasure. And that's worth having. And you can't get it any other way. If I put God and His things first, He says, Junior, I'll take care of you. And not only does He promise to take care of us, but we get more of Him. We get more life. We get more joy. We get more goodness. We get more of that transformation that makes us more like Christ Himself. Guys, I know my old nature and I don't like it. I'm wretched inside. And the more I grow as a Christian, the more wretched I see I am. I don't want more of me. And I don't want more of what I can figure out. I want less of me. I want more of God. When we give ourselves to God first and fully, we get more of Him. That's worth having. We aren't free agents living life on our own terms. We are servant children who report to our Father moment by moment to His good will. That's a life of worship. Now, if worship is like a sacrifice that's not a moment of our life, but every moment of our life, take that understanding and read John 4 23. This is a verse that's on our home page at the Lion and Lamb website. It's an important verse to us as a church. It always has been. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman there at the well, and, and she's sort of making small talk, avoiding her sin issues by talking about the disparity between the Samaritan's worship and the Jewish form of worship. And, and so Jesus famously says to him, says to her, the hour is coming, it's now here, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and truth. Now, if you're like me, spirit and truth, it's kind of fuzzy. 
It's kind of warm and glowish. Lord, I'm worshiping in spirit and truth. I'm not sure what that looks like, not sure what that means, but it sounds good. Yeah, that's me. I'm on board. But if worship in spirit and truth is submitting all of my life and everything I have and everything I own and all my hopes to God to obey His good will, that sort of clarifies this a little bit, doesn't it? That changes John 4.23 for me. That when God calls worshipers, He's calling people who will absolutely commit their life to Him in an act of sacrificial worship. Not one moment, not one day a week, not 10%, 100%, all day, every day. See, that's a different take on John 4.23. God's inviting us to worship. And when He does so, He says, guys, I want you to live your life on the altar there in the flames. But you won't die, but you'll be worshiping Me. In this sense, there's absolutely no difference between the Father seeking worshipers, it's an absolute call, and Jesus seeking disciples. You know, when you read the synoptic accounts, Jesus raises the bar pretty high for disciples, doesn't he? Pretty darn high. So my example here, I think this is on your study sheet, Luke, Luke 14, Jesus could always attract a, a crowd. Because if you have some tricks, you know, you heal a few people or you feed the, the, the masses, you know, miraculously, you'll get a pretty big following. So he's got a big crowd following him. And he says to them, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's strong language. So, Jesus, let me get this straight. So, to follow you, to be your disciple, I have to put you first above everyone and everything else. Yep. I've got to put my desires and my hopes for this life aside. Yep. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know, the cross is the image of death. So, Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple... You're going to live by dying. You're called to die to who you were and what you were and what you wanted. You live a cruciform life. Down with the old, up with the new. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This doesn't mean, by the way, that we join a monastery and become ascetics. This isn't about possessions at all. It's who do we think they belong to. You know, if God can trust us with things, He can give us all kinds of things, authority and influence and wealth, if those things don't hold our heart. But that's the issue. Where's our heart? So Jesus says, unless you're willing to see your life as a constant offering, everything in the past lived only to me, you can't be my disciple. Well, that's John 4.23's call to worshipers. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's a radical commitment to offer ourselves every moment of every day to God. And by the way, just so I've said it, how can you worship in truth if you don't know what the truth is? If you don't know your Bible, you can't worship. You can't worship God. 
If you don't know what the truth is, you can't worship in truth. So if we're not reading our Bibles, if we're not meditating on the Scriptures and memorizing it, we can't be worshipers. It requires the knowledge of the truth. Got to know the Bible if you're going to be a worshiper. God suffers no lesser demigods, and that includes ourselves and our friends and our parents and our desires, anything else that might hinder us from fully giving ourselves to Him. When God instituted that covenant with Israel in the Old Testament there at Sinai, remember the first command, I'm the Lord your God, have no other gods before me. He says, I'm it. You're to worship me and only me. Now he also said later in Exodus 34, he also said, not only are you to worship me only, I also want you to be a wrecking crew because I want you to destroy the idols in the land around you. He said, tear down their altars, break down their pillars, cut down their ashram. You shall worship no other god for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Someone has said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. And I believe that. And this means that if we're not thoughtfully looking for our idols and tearing them down, we're probably bowing down to lesser gods. Knowing our own propensity, if we're not alert to the idols in our own life, it's a pretty good chance that we've got them and we're worshiping other gods, little gods' idols. If our life isn't characterized by obeying God's commands, we are not by definition, worshipers. A disobedient Christian is a non-worshipper by definition. Now, there's a priority to acts of worship. Biblically, there's a priority to acts of worship. If you're familiar with the architecture of the temple in Jerusalem or the tabernacle, you may see this in your mind as we talk through two points here in their order of priority. Paul said in Romans 1.5, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. The obedience of faith is faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's what Paul says. The obedience of faith. The act of trusting in Jesus Christ is the appropriate response to the command from the God of heaven to repent and believe the gospel. Faith in Christ in conversion is our first act of worship, of knowledgeable worship. Conversion is the first act of worship. It's the obedience of faith. It's the recognition that God's God and we're not. And that there's a problem with that. When we submit ourselves to God through acceptance of the gospel and Jesus and his provision for us, it is the first act of faith. And if you're thinking about the temple or the tabernacle, when you were going to approach God, you went to the altar first because your sins had to be atoned for. When we approach God, we approach through the forgiveness given in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ is our first act of worship and obedience. And if you were back in that tabernacle and 
or the temple and you got past the altar, do you remember the next thing as you approached God would be? It was a laver. It was a big, they called it a sea. A matter of fact, in Solomon's day, it was a sea of water. And the second act of obedience for the Christian biblically is baptism. Peter says in 2 Peter, when he's talking about baptism saving us, it's not the physical washing of water, but it's an appeal to God, he says, for a clear conscience through Christ's atoning sacrifice. When someone has been converted, they've worshipped God through faith in Christ. The next call in God's priority of worship through obedience is baptism. And I'm making a point of this this morning because I think it's so important. I think we disregard this all over the place. The church. Evangelical church, Protestant churches, lion and lamb. We talk about this from time to time, but I don't think we implement it as fully as we should. You have a study sheet, by the way. You have the church position paper on baptism if you have a bulletin. And I'd encourage you to read that later if you haven't already. When I look around the church, and I think that we tend to be uh, typified by people who sort of uh, worship God through obedience as we see fit, when we see fit, I can't help but wonder if it doesn't start right at the front door of faith. See, the early believers in the early church knew when I trust Christ, it requires something of me, and I get baptized. I identify with Christ immediately. I obey God through baptism after I've believed Him and been converted. In the Great Commission there in Matthew 28, Jesus says to the disciples post-resurrection, getting ready to go back to heaven, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. All the authority in the world, in the universe, it's mine. And with that authority, I command you and those who follow you to go and make disciples in all the world, in all the nations. Go and make followers of me. And when you do, this is what they're to do. This is what you're to do for them. You're to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then you're to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. You can see that linear progression, can't you? They become baptisms. That's conversion. Did I say that right? They're converted. They exercise faith. They worship in faith. Sorry, repentance and faith. They get baptized and that baptism leads them into a life that's characterized by obeying all God's commands. That's the progression. I think one reason we have so many disobedient Christians is because we don't tell them at the front door, you need to submit your life to God and get baptized. Acts 2, I'll run through this quite quickly. Well, let me just tell you, Acts 2, 8, 9, and 10, I'll just tell you briefly, in each one of these occasions, this is what you see. Someone hears the gospel, they're convicted, they believe, and they get baptized. That's the norm. You can't get any other norm out of the New Testament. God gave two ordinances to the church. Baptism, these are, are ceremonies, things we do ceremonially that have meaning, spiritual meaning. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. By the way, I should say too, a Jesus ministry didn't begin until what? Until he was baptized by John. Began with baptism. We have baptism, which is meant to follow immediately or short, shortly after conversion, and we have the Lord's Supper. Now, we reverse these today. We get these backwards. 
So to baptism, we say, you know, I'll, I'll get around to baptism, you know, sometime. You know, maybe next year, maybe next time, maybe, maybe, maybe. I don't want to get my hair wet, though. Do I have to hold my nose? Do, do I really have to go under the water? Uh, I don't know. You know, the, it, the thought just doesn't appeal to me. I'm not sure about baptism. But the Lord's Supper? Well, sure. Stroll up, take a little bread, a little juice. Yeah, I'm all in. It's backwards. You know, in the early church, people didn't take the Lord's Supper that hadn't been baptized. They didn't do it. Baptism was the signal to everybody else. These guys are one of us. They're in the family of God. They're part of the church. And that's why they come to the table. But today, we take the Lord's Supper blithely. We haven't obeyed Him in baptism. If you're a Christian, if you know you're going to heaven because Jesus died for your sins, you need to be baptized. And if you haven't, let me know. It doesn't matter that it's winter. You know, I was baptized in winter. It's a good, good time to be baptized. We have a baptism every summer at Lake Shawnee. And I just say, if you need to be baptized, don't wait. We've got the use of another church in town. <clears throat> Alan, we've got a horse tank at our house. My friend Alan can testify. We can get you baptized. But if you've trusted Christ and you haven't been baptized, you need to be. Don't put it off. Obey. Worship God through obedience. I think that to the degree that we look at our life and we say, you know what, if, if worship means obedience to God in all areas of life, if that's what it means, and I look at my life and I say, I'm not a worshiper, that doesn't characterize my life, I can tell you it probably comes down to this, you don't fear God enough and you don't love God enough. Because the truth is we worship both who and what we fear and who and what we love. It sounds opposite, but it's the truth. Our first acts towards God usually are born of a fear or an awe. I know I'm going to hell without Jesus. That's the fear of God, and that's a good thing. And I may worship through faith in Jesus to escape hell. Guys, I'm for escaping hell. Absolutely. Get out. Don't go. That's the beginning of that life of worship. Fear. Fear's a good start. Fear's not enough, though. God means for our motivation to worship to move from fear and awe to love. And if you look in Matthew 26, there's just one of the best examples in all the Bible of worship in that story. And briefly, it's this. It's right before Jesus' trial and crucifixion. And a woman comes to Simon's house in the city of Bethany. She's got, just by the look of it, it's an alabaster flask. It's expensive. And the oint that means it contains very expensive ointment. And this silly woman uncorks that flask and she pours that expensive ointment on top of Jesus' head. What's with that? Pour a goop on my hair. You know, now, the disciples know something about the, the worth of what just got poured out. And you know, no doubt, in that room, it smells really good about then. But they're looking at the flask, they're smelling, they're knowing that costs a lot of money. And you know what their response is? Stupid woman. Look what she did. She wasted all that expense on Jesus. We should have sold it. 
We could have fed the poor. Social equality. We could have fed street people. We could have put a roof over somebody's house for the day. And Jesus says, guys, hold on. Uh, she's done me a good thing. And you're going to have the poor with you always. They're never going to go away. They're always going to be here. They'll always be here for you to serve. But me, you won't have. And I love this. Jesus says of that silly, stupid woman's act of extravagance, he says, this is the deal. Every place the gospel goes, that woman's going to be remembered. And friends, for two millennia, I don't know her name, for two millennia, her story's been repeated all over the earth. You know what? She worshipped. See, all the expense, whatever that thing cost, you know, all the time and the, the precious worth of that oil, that ointment and the flask itself. See, she worshipped because she poured it out singularly on God the Son. This was a pure act of worship. And the disciples are ticked. Because they're about being utilitarian now. They don't get it yet. This is the definition of worship. Her act is the definition of worship. I take everything I have and I pour it out for God alone. That is worship. And God has honored her singularly through the last 2,000 years, years in His eternal Word because she knew what worship was. Because she worshipped Jesus, the Son of God. When we lead lives where we're careful about not worshipping God too much, you know, getting a little too radical, you know, a little too loud, hands a little too high. Did you say you actually kneel before God when you pray? You know, if we're guarding ourselves against extravagance in worship, we don't know what worship is. This gal knew what worship was. The extravagant waste of pouring ourselves out for God. That is worship. I need to wind down. Let me tell you briefly, the genesis of this series, I've thought about worship for a long time. Worship is a big deal to me. It was a big deal when this church started. Psalm 95 was my verse for Lion and Lamb when we started. Come let us worship and bow down. It was my dream for Lion and Lamb. We've had guests, however, over the last year or so, who've remarked to us, they've said, you know, we wondered why people didn't worship more in your service. They said, we noticed people didn't really seem enthusiastic when they sang, and lots of people weren't singing at all when you worship. Some of these were Christians, and some of these weren't Christians. And I thought, wow, that's telling. Interesting. You know, for me, the saints gathered, worshiping, and by this I mean the narrow sense, singing, declaring praises to God, while on one hand we're saying that's not the totality, it's not even the majority of our worship, it can be a pretty good barometer of where our hearts are at. And worship, if we visit a church, one of the things I hope that happens and that happens here is that that worship is so vital, it's so heartfelt, it is so spiritual and truthful that it calls people in. If visitors came and they said, man, you know, your church, your, the worship was just lacking. I think they're putting their finger on an issue for us. And that's why, frankly, I'm teaching on worship. Many of us, part of the time, have half-hearted and indifferent worship in our corporate worship. 
I don't think it's possible to address worship on Sunday morning. By the way, this is the last thing we'll talk about, corporate worship. Uh, It's the narrowest thing. And to me, it's sort of the icing on the cake. You can't build a life of worship on just Sunday morning. You know, Monday through Saturday, if you're not worshiping, Sunday morning's not it. We don't get up and have a cup of coffee on Sunday morning and get worship. You know, we don't come in, if we're not worshipers through the week, we don't come in on Sunday morning and suddenly transform into worshipers. A missionary at a conference said, getting on an airplane does not make you a missionary. And coming to church does not make us a worshiper. Sitting here does not make us worshipers. There are lots of variables to how we worship on Sunday morning. Uh, Tons of them, and we'll look at these later in February. But this is the deal for that narrow slice of worship that is Sunday morning, corporately calling on God. This is our goal. This is Romans 15.6. Together, with one voice, Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is our goal in corporate praise, singing, declarative worship on Sunday morning. It's that together we're gathered corporately. Together we raise one voice to offer worship through our spoken word to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is an act of the will Corporate worship is a decision to raise our voices together to honor God. And it is not primarily about musical preference. I know there's kids. There's all kinds of distractions. There's the things, the thoughts we brought with us in the morning. But it's an act of the will to submit ourselves to God and to declare His excellencies. So if our life lacks focus, if we feel indifferent to God, or if worship Sunday morning is an exercise to endure or a spectator sport to watch, we need to gain or regain a heart of worship. Go back to the beginning. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A life in the flames, on the altar, offered solely and fully to God. I want to pray in closing. And as I do, I'm going to kneel, because I think it's important. And I offer the invitation to you, if you're able physically and have space, to kneel or to bow before God, not because it makes us worshipers, but because it's appropriate, and let's pray, and then we'll go into our time of corporate worship, declaring God's goodness and praise. Father, I confess uh, I am not the worshiper I should be. And Father, you know fully all the ways and all the times in which I simply choose my own way. Lord, Isaiah said that he was a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips, and that applies to us today in your church as surely as it did his day in Israel. Father, would you help us to radically commit our lives to worship you? God, would you help us to see that in your goodness and grace, And love, when we give ourselves to you, we don't lose, we gain. That God, to know you is life itself. That to be in your presence is love and peace and joy and pleasures forever. God, would you help us have done with lesser gods and idols, whatever they are and whatever they look like. God, would you help us like that woman in Jesus' day, Pour out our lives 
to you. Acts of worship to honor you. And as Will said about his time at Passion, Lord, that it's not a singular experience. It's about a decision following a decision to put you and your things first. God, help us to do that. Help us to become your worshipers, living sacrifices, Lord, with our friends in the fire, body and soul, Lord, committed to you. In Jesus' name, amen.